Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. I'm Jean Meserve. Jeff Stein is taking a well-deserved week off. The mystery of what and who is behind Havana syndrome continues to deepen. In recent weeks, an intelligence official traveling with CIA Director Burns in India reported symptoms, as did a member of Vice President Kamala Harris's staff on the ground in Vietnam doing advance work for the VP's visit there. There are reports that U.S. personnel in Vienna and some of their family members are suffering the debilitating effects, which include nausea, headaches, pain, dizziness, strange sounds. And the Wall Street Journal is reporting that a CIA officer was recently evacuated from Serbia after suffering what were called serious injuries consistent with Havana syndrome. Top government officials have said repeatedly that they are committed to getting to the bottom of this. Among them, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who was questioned by NBC's Andrea Mitchell last June. Andrea, the president and I are committed to getting to the bottom of this. My number one responsibility as Secretary of State is to protect the men and women who work for the uh, uh, Foreign Service and the Civil Service who are representing our country uh, around the world. And we need to know what happened. Uh, We need to know who's responsible. And we need to make sure that we have in place measures to protect our people. Uh, The president has ordered that we um, make an intensive uh, whole of government uh, investigation to try to get to the bottom of this. We we just don't have an answer yet. We do not know uh, exactly who is responsible uh, and, and what was done. Well, here we are in September, still without any answers, but with a longer list of apparent victims. Dr. James Giordano has been investigating Havana syndrome since the first cases were reported in 2016. He's a professor of neurology and biochemistry at Georgetown University Medical Center and executive director of the Institute for Biodefense Research here in Washington, D.C. I asked whether he believes claims that the syndrome is psychological, a mass psychogenic illness, as some have described it. I don't. Uh, For a number of reasons, primarily based upon all the available objective findings multidimensional objective findings from those original cases in Havana. There were clinical findings that cannot be faked. The temporal presentation of how these individuals sought treatment did not in any way speak the fact that there was ongoing communication between them prior to their clinical diagnosis and assessment. The individuals who were on the job had a long history of being on the job. There was no what we refer to as psychological overlay. In other words, there was no secondary or tertiary gain. None of the individuals had pre-existing conditions that would suggest that this was in some way an exacerbation of an existing condition that they then modified to meet the circumstances. And in fact, they're coming forward and describing their symptoms and then having those objective signs clinically assessed and evaluated essentially took them out of that workforce. And each and all of those individuals were vigilant and diligent on the job. 
That said, the debunking of the information that would suggest that there was some psychogenic overlay to those first individuals in no way speaks to a larger audience. And so I think what is important to appreciate is that the relative ubiquity of information, some of the vagary of information, some of the miscommunication and misinformation subsequent to 2016 has created something of a psychogenic phenomenon within the broader public. And it's my view, as well as those of a number of others who are working on the Havana syndrome and and related instances, that the construct of producing a public disruptive effect where there's intentional ambiguity creates something of the fog of engagement and may be part of the intent so as to make it somewhat more difficult to actually discriminate what is real from what is not, what is imagined from what is genuine, and therefore clouds, if you will, the evidence path. So are you suggesting that some of the more recent reported cases may not be real cases? Those may be psychological in nature? Well, I can tell you from my own experience that literally not a week goes by where I'm not contacted by someone who believes that they may have been downrange of what they believe to be something of these anomalous health incidents, AHI, resulting from whatever was the source of the Havana syndrome. We have to take each and all of those that meet particular characteristics and criteria seriously and refer them appropriately. And there are defined criteria and characteristics that would allow those thresholds to be met and that would then prompt subsequent and more detailed investigation, analysis, and assessment. To date, there have been over 100 cases of individuals who are presenting with subjective signs, subjective symptoms, and objective signs that have rendered that to be valid and verified that something there is there. This is not a pre-existing condition. This is not an example of psychiatric or psychological overlay or underlay. This is not confusion. Something happened to these individuals. Have you looked at the brain scans of some of these people? Yes, ma'am, I have. What do they show? In general, there's what we call a constellation of features. In other words, think of the constellation as we would looking at the stars. You have individual stars and they're scattered around. But if you put them all together, that's part of the constellation. So we can look up into the sky and say, ah, that's Orion. The same thing here. Uh, they're, They're not identical findings, but they certainly fit a pattern, a cumulative pattern, amalgamation of findings that are representative of both structural and functional disruption in brain node and network activity. Now, let me let me explain. The problem that we have is that further detail of these findings is difficult for the simple reason that you can't take a brain out of someone's head while they're still alive. Biopsying brain tissue is very, very difficult to do. Not impossible, but very, very difficult to do. Obviously, as you would imagine, it's highly invasive. As well, the nature of the insult, in other words, the thing that went wrong, tends to modify over time. So these are very small structural changes that then induce ripple effects for functional changes. 
the easiest way to think about the brain is literally as a communication network, not so much as hardwired pathways, but more like a cell phone network. So if you in some way disrupt the function of certain things, you can also disrupt the structure and vice versa. And it doesn't take a lot of small scale structural disruption to induce a rippling functional disruption and dysfunctional effect. And so what we're seeing is what looks like some form of traumatic brain injury, although none of the individuals reported not only recent traumatic brain insult, a head injury, a concussion, none of them have reported such an injury in their past. More specifically, what these injuries look like are equivalent to is the type of injury and damage you'd see following a mini stroke, or more specifically, decompression sickness, where there's a disruption of the tissue caused by changes in blood flow, caused by changes in disruption in the activity of the brain spaces and fluid spaces. And with time, what tends to happen is these will be modified. They recover a bit. The structure in some way rebounds. There's scarring for sure, but the level of scarring is at a microstructural level or a very small macrostructural level, which is very, very difficult to discern utilizing imaging in the living brain. If we were able to take the brain out of the head and do more specific, what we call morphological or histological analysis, in other words, looking at the structure or the cellular composition, particularly in the acute and subacute phase, it would be far easier. But this is one of the, the things that complicates the issue. So what do you think could have done this kind of damage? That's a very good question. You know, when I was originally brought on to the case, my, my job, if you will, at that time was to engage a process called forensic abduction or abductive forensics. In other words, we don't have all the evidence. We don't have the proverbial smoking gun. We don't have a, quote, entrance wound or an exit wound. We've got some things that happened in between. We have a set of subjective symptoms that these individuals are reporting, and those subjective symptoms are relatively consistent across those individuals affected. We certainly have objective clinical signs, and these objective clinical signs cannot be faked. And they, too, are consistent along a pattern of findings. So what could have done this? What I was asked to do was to develop a set of possibilities. And from those possibilities, given all of the information, not only about the, the patients themselves, but about the environment, the geometries of the environment, the architecture, the physics of the spaces, the temporal situations, to then determine what would be most probable. So this is basically how the process went. Could it have been some form of a chemical agent that perhaps even something artifactual or accidental like a pesticide. We know there are a number of pesticides that work through the brain's acetylcholine system, for example, that can induce these types of effects, but they would be far more broad. In other words, they'd be far more generalized than the individuals who were affected. Could it have been possible that just those individuals were in some way susceptible or were in range for a pesticide, particularly if, for example, the local officials wanted their domiciles to be pest-free? Sure, that's a possibility. 
what would you see? Would you see the same types of things? Well, you would see some of the same types of signs and symptoms, but what you would also notice, there'd be artifact, there'd be residue of the pesticide in the environment, in the domicile, and you would be able to find artifacts and metabolites of the pesticide in the bodily fluids of the individuals affected. None of these things were found. Is it also possible that perhaps some form of commercial, industrial, or architectural solvent or other chemical may have been utilized for a variety of different purposes, all of them benign? And as a consequence, these individuals had perhaps unique, although aggregate responses, abnormal responses, side effects. Sure, that's possible too. Environmental analysis of these individuals' domiciles didn't reveal anything out of the ordinary, and none of the individuals had other signs and symptoms that would be reflective of that. Is it possible they were poisoned? Is it possible that, for example, there there was some existing pharmacological agent, perhaps something that was novel, in other words, used in a novel way, or something perhaps even new? In other words, this is sort of reflective of, of what we're seeing elsewhere. Think here of something like Novichok. Well, here too, there would be some evidence of that. The evidence would primarily be in those things that would be retrieved from bodily fluids and tissues that would provide some evidence of the fact that these people would downrange of this type of an engagement, even if it were in fact intentional or perhaps artifactual, non-intentional. So what else could it have been? At that point, we moved the thought over to well, what types of devices could do this? And this is where you really get into the idea of directed energies. So what things could do this? Is it possible that some form of a surveillance device could have done this, where they're looking to engage deeply into the electromagnetic noise floor and as a consequence do surveillance and reconnaissance, and in so doing, utilize some form of electromagnetic pulsing device that was able to pull information out, but depending on where you were in range, so to speak, if you got Outside of the window of what would be used for surveillance, it could have had an abnormal and perhaps harmful health effect. Yes, that's completely possible. We didn't rule that possibility out. Well, what kind of device might that be? It could certainly be some form of sonic device. It could certainly be some form of electromagnetic pulsing device, sort of a radio frequency device along the magnetic spectrum, similar to a sonic device, but not identical. We also considered the possibility of some form of microwave device and perhaps a laser device. Now, if it were a surveillance device, then the issue becomes, is it also possible that it would not only be to surveil these individuals, but if what surveillance was revealing was significant, important, and therefore of value, could you also disrupt the communication? And by disrupting the communication, what we're talking about is disrupt the communicator. Yes, that's possible. Or, and or, is it equally possible and therefore probable that these same types of devices could be used, not necessarily with surveillance intent, but with disruptive intent? In other words, there may not be a surveillance component at all. This is simply an attempt to disrupt these individuals' physiological capabilities and in so doing, therefore, disrupt their cognitive capabilities, their performance and professional capabilities, and in that way, drive a wedge, if you will, higher and higher up the socioeconomic and or political and intelligence chain. 
after subsequent analyses, it was determined that the most probable sources of this type of effect would be, as mentioned, some form of rangeable acoustic sonic and ultrasonic device, a shielded microwave that would be delivered in the very rapid pulsed range. In other words, something like a a low gigawatt microwave that is delivered somewhere along the medium to high nanosecond range that could be shielded from whoever was the aggressor, at least relatively shielded, and then could be delivered at a relative distance. And or the use of the laser, either as a tracking and targeting mechanism, or in some way to actually embed other forms of energy within the, the laser itself so that the laser works sort of like a, like a chaperone. When we look back at the, the initial findings at that time, 2016, 2017, I was leaning more towards the fact that this was some form of a sonic device for a number of different reasons, not least of which is that a number of nations had dedicated research programs in sonics, the United States being one of them, the former Soviet Union, now Russia, trans-Pacific competitors, China, a number of nations around the world. We know that there are patents for rangeable acoustic devices that have both an acoustic and uh, an ultra or over over the acoustic range component to them. In other words, where they're, they're not audible. We also know that there are a number of these types of sonic devices that are commercially available and that these are widely used globally as pest repellents. You can buy them over the Internet for installing in your garage or in your home to repel. So these are like those mosquito things that one sees advertisements for, you know, put this in your backyard and they'll stay, stay away. You can even go further than that. There was a website that was available, which I believe this is sort of like a game of whack-a-mole, I believe has now been taken down. It was called myskunkworks.com. And you can buy these forms of sonic disruptive devices in a variety of sizes and styles, and they're advertised to be able to repel vermin, mammals. And there's a number of reasons for this. They create a, a sonic wave that's disruptive. It induces something called a cavitation effect. In other words, a, a disrupting effect in bodily fluids and soft tissue. And when that occurs, many mammals, humans included, find it to be very uncomfortable. Rats cannot vomit. And so they develop a profound sense of nausea. They associate the nausea with the place. They're not going back there. The same thing is true for animals called martens. It's a weasel-like animal that are, are pretty common in parts of Europe that are well known to sneak into garages and chew upon the hoses of automobiles because part of the insulation is made from a, a vegetable product. And so they, they chew that. So to keep these things out of your garage, to keep these things out of your home, you install these devices. You can They have device instructions that tell you how to arrange them to create sort of the perfect cavitational wave where you get linear and coaxial effects of the waveform. You turn the thing on, you can't hear it, they hear it, they come into the environment, they're disturbed by it physiologically, they associate that environment with feeling terrible, they don't come back. However, what's also important to note is these devices are also marketed to repel home intruders of the human sort. So is it possible that a device such as this may have been purchased, modified, installed, and or used in some other way 
to be able to disrupt these individuals? Sure. That's the what I would call the low-hanging fruit. Is that necessary? Would that be an absolute requirement that someone go to such a website and get one of these devices and install it? Yeah, there was no such evidence. I'm not going to say confronted, but when we engage in discourse with our Cuban colleagues, they, they, they frankly denied any custodial knowledge of this. There was no provenance of these types of things being installed to repel vermin or otherwise. But is it possible that this could have fallen into the hands of a bad actor? Is it possible that this could have then been modified downrange to become a more potent device? Sure, that was our original thought. However, the nature of the anomalous health incident, in other words, the actual effects, both those things that were observed in terms of the clinical features, as well as the duration of these effects, suggested something far more powerful than a do-it-yourself or direct-to-consumer device. It would be more in the range of those devices that would come out of the programs of research and development at a more national level. Yeah, and so government involved, it's not some rogue individual, you think? Well, you know, we, I can't rule out a rogue individual and explain why. Because the nature of non-kinetic operations, if that's what we're seeing here, and again, that's still open for speculation, but I think that there's at least some strong suggestion is that this was intentional and therefore existing in the non-kinetic and kinetic border. Doesn't necessarily have to be enacted by a nation state, but rather can be engaged through the use of proxies. So if I'm a nation state and I have research development in a particular technology and that reaches a level that I feel is scalable, fieldable, and perhaps operationalizable, and I want to test this in a way that is sort of a, a win-win scenario, if it works, great. If it doesn't, well, okay. And what if we get caught, so to speak? Well, if working in the clandestine space or going deeper and working in the covert space, one of the easiest ways to engage the covert space is through proxies. In other words, what would appear to be a non-state actor, but a non-state actor with the would then be supplied with this technology for these intents. And that's an additional worry at this point. So if the technology is ready and available, it's just a question of who then is going to get their hands on the technology and how they'll use it. So a couple of clues or potential clues. One might be that these attacks have taken place in so many different places, right? I think every continent, but Antarctica at this point has seen some kind of a, a, an attack like this. Well, they have been diverse, correct. Secondly, are only Americans being affected or people no. of other nationalities? No, ma'am. I think the, the, those cases that came to the most conspicuous spotlighting were our Canadian colleagues. Close allies. Yes, ma'am. Um, so do you have a theory on who's responsible? That's a little above my pay grade. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm the humble neuroscientist here. I think the easiest way to go about narrowing down the possibilities is to really evaluate the level of technological development and readiness, which is a fancy way of saying who's working on this stuff. And then when you say who's working on this stuff, you then say, well, what would be the mechanism or method of the research development and its translation? How far along the technological readiness level is that translation and its various applications? And then at that point, that leaves you at what I would call the border or the cliff of intent. Then what would the intent be? If we take that back to the starting point, we say, well, all right, what nations are working on these types of things? There are a number. 
I mean, I think the big three come to mind. Certainly the United States has a history and also has current involvement in working on sonic devices, microwaves, and directed lasers. Some of this is occurring in the commercial space, the development of these devices, for example, for industrial and commercial testing and evaluation. Certainly this represents an area of potential dual use. That's acknowledged in the United States and among our allies. My discussions with my NATO colleagues also recognize the possibility of what's going on in, in NATO-based research laboratories and laboratories that are not in any way affiliated with national security, intelligence, and defense, but are simply engaging in this form of biophysical research to be uptaken into dual-use agendas. So we have to recognize the technology is out there. That technology is patented technology, but as you know, patents exist in the open informational domain space. And although we, whoever we may be, respect these patents, patent respect internationally is not necessarily uniform. And there's also the possibility of what's called fast followers. So in other words, you, you take a patent, you realize there may be certain aspects of that patent that represent what are known as puffs. In other words, phenotypically uncopyable functions. And you say, well, how badly do we need that function or how badly do we need that structure? Can we modify it in such a way so that, you know, we, we come out with, with a soda that we call six up or eight up. It's not seven up, but come on. So nudge, nudge, wink, wink, say no more. And then the other issue is whether or not United States patents or European patents are internationally respected. And the truth to that issue is only in those areas where those commercial products and industrial products are going to be used for profit and therefore international law would leverage some type of retribution or sanction. If in fact, those patents provide information that could then be used to develop something for dual use purposes, purposes that could be used, for example, in military settings or other forms of operational settings for non-kinetic engagements, then to hell with patents. A simple example of this would be, well, the United States developed a nuclear weapon in 1945, and by 1948, well, we weren't the only ones who had nuclear weapons. The same is true with jet aircraft. The same is true with large-scale battle tanks, et cetera. So once it's out there, it's out there. That's number one. Number two, we have to take a look at what, what nations have had historically and continue to have dedicated programs in these areas. And to reiterate, we're looking at the former Soviet Union, much of that work now being translated into Russian programs. And our trans-Pacific competitor, China, also has dedicated research programs looking at sonics and, and ultrasonics, rangeable sonic devices, shieldable microwaves that are rapidly pulsable and lasers. And they're rather explicit that they are utilizing these types of devices for forms of industrial and commercial testing to assess the vulnerability and volatility of both inorganic and organic materials. Last time I checked, the human body is an organic material. So when and how are we going to get to the bottom of it? Is this going to be a multi-year process? Or do you think there's a possibility that we'll be able to figure out exactly what this is and be able to attribute it in relatively short order? Well, it has been a multi-year process. This is what Yeah, but I mean, from here forward. Well, my, my hope would be that the express dedication of the new administration, number one, to validate this. This is something valid. This is something real. It's not crickets. It's not a psychogenic effect. There's something there, there. To be able to explicate that this appears to have been and continues to be 
intentional and not simply artifactual, that it represents a clear and present both risk and now threat, and to gain deeper insight to the constellation of features, not the least way, but it was by opening up the field, so to speak, of removing some of the biases against individuals who come forth and reporting this. Now, th that's a mixed bag. Uh, as you know, uh, Defense Secretary Austin came forth about two weeks ago and put out an invocation that anyone who feels that they may have been subjected to this type of effect, who may be experiencing these types of anomalous health signs and symptoms, should come forward and report these to a responsible source. And I think that's an important step forward because what it does is it provides that invitation for those individuals who may feel that had they reported this before, there would have been some stigma, some bias. I think that the cloud of psychogenic illness was certainly hanging over that, that reporting mechanism. At the same time, I think increases, if you will, the workload. Because you have to appreciate that now there is a cadre of the worried well. There is also a community, a collective of individuals who may have some mass psychogenic effect that transcends just the worried well. And then also, if you will, calls forth those individuals who do have some psychological overlay, the pre-existing or current. And I think what becomes important, and I really commend Secretary Austin for this, is it is now important to dedicate the resources, the services, the personnel, the time, and, and the expense, which has been explicated by the, the Biden administration as, as being an agenda item, to be able to, if you will, discern reality from non-reality, to discern and discern on a more granular level those clinical features of signs, as well as those symptoms that represent this constellation, rule other cases out, for example, but then get a clearer picture, a far more precise picture of what's going on here. That would, I think will provide a bit more clarity. Would you define this as an act of war? That's way above my pay grade. But let me address the question. At this point, I would certainly say that this exists as an engagement in the non-kinetic space probably at the border of what would be considered a non-kinetic versus kinetic engagement. The problem with non-kinetic engagements is that they are difficult to both classify and to respond to. They don't meet well-established thresholds for an act of war. Responding kinetically to a non-kinetic engagement is problematic at least on the political level, if not on the military level, it can be seen as justification for then whoever we're responding to, to then respond in turn kinetically, and therefore can be escalatory. I think a viable example is the problems we saw trying to respond with some level of reciprocity and proportionality to cyber attacks. You have to ask the question, what is the extent of the damage? Is it destructive or is it disruptive? If what you have are individuals who are being affected, and that individual count, for example, as we have now, let's, let's just round it off to a, a nice fat number, is 100. Well, then what represents a proportional response 
to 100 individuals who've been affected over a five-year period who are relatively dysfunctional on a number of levels. The ripple effects affecting their professional capabilities, that disruption of their professional capabilities, therefore creating disruptions within the professional integrity, the force mission capability, and to some extent, even socioeconomic and geopolitical stability in a region, in case in point, Cuba. How do you respond to that? Now, one of the important points is to actually further demonstrate what the actual extent of damage is. I'm talking physiological damage. Because if the intent is to harm, and that harm is significant and durable, then at that point, I think what that would prompt is some re-examination, revisitation, perhaps revision of what constitutes a kinetic engagement. And I believe, and this is my opinion solely, it doesn't reflect any of the organizations who have sponsored my work, who I have advised, this is my opinion solely, that as we move to the future, what we're going to see, and I've claimed this in other writings and other public fora, and I do so unapologetically again here, is that we're seeing more of our biology as the new battle space. And the brain certainly constitutes an impressive domain of same. So explain where that could go. So I think what we're seeing is more leveraging of biological tools and methods to be able to selectively affect targets of opportunity or multiple targets that then can opportunize intent. Targets of opportunity include high-profile figures, individuals who are performing particular functions that may be vital, whose disruption of whatever it is they're doing may then cause force mission disruption or cessation. Advanced party of Vice President Kamala Harris's entourage, for example, key personnel of the embassy, for example, political figures. But I think there's also significant benefit and value for an aggressor to use these types of engagements and these types of operations more generally in the general public. Because what that then does is that prompts the fear of the enemy within. It's invasion of the body snatchers. This takes you down a scary road. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's the, the merit of terrorism. And the idea of terrorism coming from its etymological roots, of word roots, is, is terrare, to, to hit the earth. So what you do is you cause a little disruption, and what that does it get to everybody running. You affect a few, and the, by affecting a few directly, the indirect effect is profound. So, if you have so, so isn't that already sure. happening? I mean, hasn't warfare for a long time been about psychology? And could one say we're even seeing it right now with the use of disinformation? Without a doubt. This isn't new. I mean, I, the old adage that this is a rocket science. Well, it's not rocket science, but it's certainly physics. And like any other form of engagement of dealing with others, contending with others in ways that are going to be disruptive to their means, their intents, their ideals, if you will, to winning them over, or at very, very least to suppressing the directions and trajectories they're going, that's a definition of a weapon. So if we take this stepwise, the first step is to say, well, is this truly a non-kinetic engagement or is the damage done? the disruptive effect to these individuals' physiology, their cognition, their capabilities, significant enough to qualify as a hostile act, not necessarily as an act of war, but a hostile act with intent. And that intent is disruptive towards some destructive effect. And the consequence of that 
is that this then represents a national posture of engagement. And if, in fact, a weapon is being used to do it, again, the formal definition as an intentional directed means of contending against another through a method or a tool, then at that point, I think it becomes important to advance a discussion as to what constitutes the weapon and what constitutes the use of that weapon and whether or not such hostile engagements and the operational use of these types of biological tools are constituent to an act of war. Again, that's above my pay grade. What I can tell you is that there, there has been, for the past few years, an advancing discussion to examine and assess the viability of certain forms of technologies as operationalizable within the biological warfare space. I think some of the very commendable work of the Australia group to the review conference of the Biological Toxins and Weapons Convention a few years back brought to the fore some of my groups working with a number of colleagues, both nationally and internationally, concerns about how these new devices, techniques, and technologies could be leveraged for national security, intelligence, and defense purposes in both disruptive and destructive ways. Gene editing, for example, modification of existing organisms, development of new organisms. We need only take a look at all of the, the, the I think, the ubiquitous brouhaha over whether or not COVID was a biological weapon. And it, it was not. Is it possible it was a laboratory accident? That's still up for discussion. But the idea of gain of function research is exactly that to gain particular functions to assess its viability to infect human hosts on a variety of scale. There are existing tools in molecular biology and genetics. Probably the one that has come to the fore that most people are familiar with are the CRISPR Cas series of tools, but they just join the existing armamentarium, the existing toolkit. You put these things together in, in a convergent way. The tools become ever more capable. My particular field is the brain sciences. And what we're seeing being engaged on the biomedical space, transcranial, magnetic, and electrical modulation, indwelling brain devices, the use of ultrasound, the use of a variety of energetic waveforms to be able to produce biomedically valid effects, both in terms of things that are recuperative as well as those things that are preventive. The exact same blade, when flipped to the other side, can be used in ways that are deleterious. And so I think that what we're seeing is, as has been the nature of human history, as the science and technology advances, the possibility, if not likelihood, of employing aspects of that science and technology in agenda and operations that are reflective of national defense and or national aggression becomes ever more realized. And are there treaties? Are there protocols? Certainly yes, there, are, there are for some of these spheres, but overall, do we need a stronger regime? Yes, ma'am. I think that's, that's one of the things that certainly came out over the past, I would say, decade to, to five years, is that the advances in biotechnologies broadly, and again, the convergent advances, those things that are coming from the engineering section, our, our contemporary knowledge of, of physics, our capability of harnessing engineering and physics and then applying that to the biological realm is opening, if you will, the, the box of possibilities. A box of possibilities is also Pandora's box. So I think the, the calls here are to evaluate 
the realistic capabilities and limitations of the existing and near-term emerging biotechnologies to assess their potential, if not probability, for dual use. Again, I think some of the efforts of the Australia group to the RevCon of the Biological Toxins and Weapons Convention has been laudable. I think some of the discussions around dual-use research of concern, equally laudable. If you'd allow me to name drop some of my esteemed colleagues, some of the work of Dr. Diane Deulis at the National Defense University, Dr. Daniel Gerstein of RAND, Dr. Jason Spitaletta of the Advanced Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins, Dr. Nicholas Wright of the Strategic Multilevel Assessment Group at the Pentagon, among others. My, my working colleague, former Captain Rick Bremseth, uh, some of the, the folks working in my research group, Elsa Kanya, who's looked into and deeply analyzed some of the, the progress of science and technology in China, are all notable in this regard and have all made, I think, some strong claims for revision of the current character, the, the, the current tenor and scope and focus of the Biological Toxins and Weapons Convention to be more inclusive. You have referenced in some of your talks super soldiers and super spies. Explain what those are. I mean, I think that the idea of creating operational performance capabilities is axiomatic to any form of almost any professional training. I don't care whether this is a surgeon, I don't care whether this is an airline pilot, if this is a carpenter. So you want to make your people the best they can be. And to do so very often requires use of the state-of-the-art tools, again, to allude to pilot training, glass cockpits, the use of full motion simulators, recurrency training, cockpit resource management training, high-level communications, transitioning over from the former systems of instrument landing systems to now GPS-based approaches, hands-off flight controls, fly-by-wire. So what we see is the science and technology advances so as to make the performance of these individuals optimized within whatever is the scope of their sanctioned function. Military is no different. Intelligence community is no different. Within those professional communities, the identified goods, if you will, what is good performance represents those ways in which individuals can do their jobs better. The question then arises, what tools do we have on the biomedical and or cognitive sciences space and social sciences space as well that can then optimize these individuals' recruitment, training, capability, and longevity, if you will, on the job? The other area that gets to be gray is what constitutes a treatment and what constitutes an optimization, enablement, or an enhancement. This is where you really, I think, need to take a critical lens, literally, I mean, be critical of what constitutes preventive occupational medicine. So explain to me uh, to what extreme this could go. A very good question. So let's, let's keep the conversation going. Let's just look at the words preventive occupational medicine. A perfectly valid term, a sanctionable term, and one that I've used in much of my own writing and work as, as the forum or the nexus to engage these types of techniques and technologies. In other words, working, if you will, left of bang. You want to make individuals more resilient, more resistant. You want to keep them healthy. 
You want to maintain their health through operational and occupational protection. In other words, keeping them safer on the job, whatever that job may be, whether it's flying an airplane, swinging a hammer, driving a car, pulling a trigger. And then you also want to enable them to do whatever it is they need to do as best as they possibly can. There's an acronym there, HOPE. Health, operational, occupational protection, and enablement. These are not mutually exclusive. So the question is, can I make individuals more operationally protected, keep them safer what it is they're doing, and therefore sustain their health? Can I provide things to their health, to their constitution, to their biology that make them more resistant, resilient, recuperative? Of so we're talking about adding things potentially? Sure. We're talking about taking existing systems and ramping them up to their physiological capability high point. And doing that with pharmaceuticals or doing that with devices? Yes. Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. We're not uncomfortable with better living through chemistry, but the truth of the issue is that drugs are dirty. You know, the most selective drugs will tend to have some side effects. They don't necessarily need to be adverse, but the way drugs work is that a drug will bind to a particular site on a cell and it will evoke that action in a cell. Whatever cell has that binding site, and they can be all over the body, all over the brain. So the specificity of a drug, the sharpshooting of a drug is relatively limited. Can we sharp shot a drug? Can we get a drug exactly where it needs to go and use a very, very low dose? Sure, we can. Can we do that by local injection? Sure. Can we do that by implanting an injectable device? Sure. Can we do that by marrying the drug to some form of bioengineered scaffold, particle, chaperone, like a nanoparticle or nanomaterial, and then magnetically guiding that drug to where it has to go? Sure. Do we have to use drugs? Not at all. Can we use various forms of devices? Sure, we can. We can use donnable and doffable devices, things that you can literally take on and take off. We can use modifiable systems, in other words, lenses, earplugs, ear units. And then we can use things that are more durable, implantable devices, devices that are indwelling, that would need to be biomedically and or surgically removed as well as inserted. But more and more, the goal is non-invasive forms of biomodulation, utilizing a host of materials that can be introduced to the body and then directed within the body to auto-assemble and form network systems that are then fully operational. So this is where engineering meets medicine, meets physics, meets national security, intelligence, and defense. It sounds like cyborgs. Literally, it's a cybernetic organism that utilizes aspects of a machine interface to optimize and potentialize the capabilities of the biological unit, and the biological unit synergizes the capabilities of the machine unit. So how far away are we from this? We are there now. Is the U.S. military doing this? Many militaries are doing it. Can you give me an example? If we were to take a look at a number of prior programs that have been funded by the United States Department of Defense, they have been colloquially referred to by some interesting names. Cat's eyes, bat ears, dog nose, Iron Man. These types of things are looking at providing protective functions 
for operators, which is a fancy way of saying combat war fighters, as well as other military and or intelligence personnel who are doing their operations in theater to be able to allow them not only to be more protected on the job, but to do that job better. For example, to see better at night, to hear across a broader range of sonic frequencies, uh, the subsonic range and the ultrasonic range, ergo bats here to utilize exoskeletal suits to be able to support greater weight, to be able to run faster, to have climate control, to be able to sense incoming biological and chemical toxins or assaults and then modify the internal environment quickly. So we're there. With the external stuff, but are we implanting things into warfighters now? No, we're not. And the reason I pause is because I think that this requires some explanation. I say, no, we're not, because we're not doing that in a preventive way. To to the best of my knowledge, and of course, I'm talking to low side only, and there's no guilty knowledge here, and there's nothing, but there is nothing to my knowledge, high side or low side, that proactively engages the use of implantables in preventive or proactive ways. Are we using? neuroprostheses, brain machine and brain computer interfaces in recuperative ways in veterans who've suffered the ills and injuries of war? Absolutely. Is that appropriate? Without a doubt. But you can see that this exists along a spectrum. And that spectrum exists to the right and to the left of, quote, bang, where bang is some injury, some insult, some damage. If we can do this after the fact, to be able to get recuperation, recovery, and restoration of relative functions and capabilities? Can this be done before the fact to engage a preventive, resilient, resistant, or in some cases, enabling, performatively enabling effect? And the answer is yes. Now, what what are the safeguards? Well, in open democracies, as you have such in the United States and among our allies, clearly. The major contingency is that of consent. I'm not saying there haven't been historical issues in the United States and elsewhere where consent was not provided. I mean, the, the, the sheer edifice of contemporary both research and clinical bioethics was built upon the doctor's trial at Nuremberg in 1946 and 1947. So the idea that human experimentation occurs without consent is now opprobrious. That's anathema. Fine. What are the contingencies for consent? Well, our research group has argued very strongly that the contingencies include risk assessment and mitigation, or at very, very least, complete information about what risks are known, what risks are not known, and what, if you will, capability is going to be there to assess those risks and deal with them in the future. And in some cases, the answer is there will be no attempt to assess those risks forthgoing or to compensate for those risks. In other words, if you want to boldly go where no one has gone before, you're on your own. Will individuals do that? Yes, absolutely individuals do that. They want to be the the neuronaut, the bionaut. They they want that level of protection or capability. Very often, that produces, if you will, a demand market. Again, in open democracies, not only are the contingencies for consent important, but there's a gatekeeping effect. In other words, there are ethical parameters by which establishment of guidelines, as well as constraints and capabilities, are well-defined and re-examined. 
in full transparency, as, as you may know, I had the pleasure and privilege of working with the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, DARPA, for over five years to serve as one of their expert advisors on their ethical, legal, social issues advisory panel for those projects that were developed within and under the BRAIN initiative here in the United States. And I also had the pleasure and privilege of of working with my European colleagues on dual-use brain science within the European Union's Human Brain Project. It is a considerable issue because one of the, the, the facts of this situation is that we have to appreciate that brain science and all of bioscience and biotechnology is not simply limited to the United States and its allies. This is ever more a multinational phenomenon. And although I think arguably is occurring in developed countries, United States, Russia, China, India, other developed countries, that also creates particular issues of hegemony and power between those developed countries and developing countries and undeveloped countries. In other words, who's going to get this stuff? And as became very, very clear in some of the discussions of the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development a few years back that was examining the viability, potential, and in some cases, problems of neurotechnology on the global stage, we have to appreciate, even from the Western ethical perspective, that other cultures differ in their histories, in their needs, in their values, in their philosophies, in their ethics, and through their past and current political lenses through which all of those factors are then filtered. So if we're going to adopt a stance of cultural competence and cultural sensitivity, then it becomes problematic just to wave a hand and say, no, you can't do those things because differences in your philosophy and your ethics don't treat the human person the same way that we do, don't hold human dignity in the same way you do, or the idea of individual rights the way we do. And oh, by the way, those differences are also going to give you economic leverage whereby you might then have a a much greater impact upon the global bioeconomy. So where it becomes an issue is a question of appreciating what's happening on the global stage and recognizing the need for ongoing surveillance interactive discourse and dialectic, and also recognizing the potential for escalation in sort of one-upmanship. Looking down the road, do you see the brain and the body, but more specifically the brain, as being a key domain for battle? Without a doubt. We are there now. That was Dr. James Giordano, professor of neurology and biochemistry at Georgetown University Medical Center and executive director of the Institute for Biodefense Research in Washington, D.C. I found him absolutely fascinating, and we're going to have him back sometime to discuss data, particularly data about our neurological health and how it can be used and manipulated. And we're also going to have Jeff back next week. In the meantime, subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Lots of great content there. I'm Jean Mazur. Have a great week and stay well. 
For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.